Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Are you you're doing okay? The first group seemed a little beaten up from the first week back to school and I, in the routine, but you're doing okay? You look a little perkier, I got to say. You look a little perkier than the first group. So I'm glad you're here. Um, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the New Testament, to John chapter 2. Uh, John chapter 2, if you're a guest, just so you know, we are... Uh, we are indeed doing a study in which we're looking at various people's encounters with Jesus that are recorded by the Apostle John in his biography of Jesus. And uh, as unique as each of these encounters are, uh, one thing that is consistently true with all of them uh, is that those who had intentional or even unintentional interactions with Jesus, uh, their lives were, were seriously impacted. Uh, we saw last week, for example, the life of a young skeptic completely turned around uh, and he became a follower of Jesus. A fascinating story. If you missed it, I encourage you to go online and listen. But this morning, I want, to, um, I want to look at an encounter that some people at a wedding party had with Jesus. Uh, no doubt some of you are familiar with the story, but perhaps um, you've never thought about how what happens at this event offers a, a very beautiful and, and really a comprehensive picture of just who Jesus is and uh, what Christianity is, is really all about. So let me read the story for you, and then we'll talk about it, okay? Chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, we're told, on the third day, meaning uh, on the third day after Jesus had invited Andrew and Philip and Peter and John and Nathaniel to be followers, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. His mother was there, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they did, they filled, the, filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So, you know, uh, in every wedding I've ever seen or been part of, something inevitably goes wrong. Except, of course, mine. It was perfect, right? Something always goes wrong. Uh, it might be a little thing. You know, somebody stumbles on a line or forgets a line. It, it, sometimes it's a cute thing. The ring bearer or the flower girl refuse to come down to center aisle. They run away. Uh, sometimes it's a really funny thing. A groomsman splits his pants just before the ceremony. That happened at my daughter's wedding, by the way. And, uh, and on rare occasions, something more serious occurs that, that threatens the entire event. Point is, there's always something. And, uh, and so the fact that this wedding that John writes about had something go wrong, at least for me, it authenticates the story, indicating that what he's telling us uh, happened, really happened. So let's talk about the event. Uh, the wedding took place in the city of Cana, which is located just west of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we don't know whose wedding it was, but we know Jesus' mother, Mary, was there, and Jesus and the disciples had been invited, so they attend as well. And it's, it's, it's critical for us to note uh, as we get started that while weddings are certainly a big deal in our culture today, right, uh, they were an even bigger deal in first century Palestine. I mean, a wedding wasn't like a, 
a brief 40-minute ceremony followed by a two-hour reception with family and friends. It, it, it wasn't like that at all. It was more like a regional festival that took place where uh, the entire towns and all the surrounding villages, all the people from those areas were invited to come, come together, join the celebration, and share in this great, you know, this great wedding feast. I mean, it was a huge deal. So much so, these, these joyous celebrations would go on for at least a week. So it was a long party. And uh, because they were such a big deal, if something went seriously wrong, in the context of what was a, an honor-shame culture, if something went wrong, it would bring humiliation and disgrace upon the family. At this particular wedding, something does go wrong. The host runs out of wine. And we may say, well, that doesn't seem like a major problem, but at the time, uh, culturally speaking, socially speaking, it was, it was a bit of a crisis, really. Because running out of wine wasn't just about not having anything left for your guests to drink, which in and of itself would be disgraceful. In ancient Israel, wine symbolized joy, which meant wine was an essential part of the, uh, of the ongoing celebration. Without it, there really was no feast. And uh, I realize that the importance of this symbolism is lost on us, but it was a very important thing and very meaningful uh, to people in ancient Palestine. The rabbis the ancient rabbis had a saying, where there is no wine, there is no joy. And so to run out of wine before the wedding feast was officially over wasn't merely a humiliating social faux pas. Uh, it was a serious symbolic issue. The, the joy was gone. You know, the joy ran out. Now we don't, we don't know why or how this, this happened. Obviously there was a miscalculation somewhere along the line. And uh, somewhere, uh, somehow Mary becomes aware of the problem. It, you know, it could be that um, the bride or the groom uh, was part of her extended family, and so she, she had some insider information. We don't know how she found out uh, what was happening, but she did. And so she says to Jesus, they have no more wine. And over the years, I've heard, I've heard some people label this as the first prayer ever offered to Jesus, which I think makes for good devotional material and good, good preaching, but... Uh, uh, this, this wasn't a prayer. Uh, it's just a statement of fact. It's like she was saying, oh, you're not going to believe this. The family's run out of wine. It's tragic. She doesn't tell them to do anything. She doesn't ask them for anything. She simply informs them of what was happening in the situation. And Jesus responds in a very interesting way. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Which, I don't know, seems a bit cold. A little, di- you know, a little... <laughs> A little distant. Uh, he doesn't call her mom. He doesn't call her Mary. But he says, woman, why are you telling me this? And then what he says next wasn't cold at all. It was just confusing. He says, my time has not yet come. Literally translated, the text reads, my hour has not arrived, which is a fascinating statement because all throughout John's writing, there are several references to Jesus' hour. And in every single case, it's a reference to his death. So think about this for a second. Mary tells Jesus the wedding wine, the joy is gone, it's run out. And he basically says, why involve me? It's not my time to die. I don't know, maybe Mary is used to cryptic statements like that, I'm not sure. But uh, what was that about? We'll come back back to that in a few minutes. But first, I want want us to notice how Mary reacts. Because she doesn't say, well, excuse me. Uh... She, she, she doesn't say anything. She simply turns to the servants who are waiting on tables, and she says, do whatever he tells you. And for me, 
I don't know how you feel about it. For me, this is an expression of great trust. She believed that if there was anything to be done, something that could be done, Jesus would do it. I'm not sure she was expecting a miracle, but that's, that's exactly what happens. Jesus instructs the servants to fill six stone containers that held upwards of 30 gallons of water. And uh, this was not drinking water, okay? This was water used for ceremonial uh, washings, you know, for ritual cleansing. So they fill the containers to the brim, and then Jesus tells the servants, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, i.e., the person in charge. And so they, so they do. And when the master of the banquet tastes the sample, the water had turned into wine. And not just any wine, a very fine wine. Okay? Uh, and while the servants knew what happened, they knew, they, they knew where the wine came from. The guy in charge did not. He just assumed it was, uh, it was provided by the, the host, the family, because he pulls the bridegroom aside. He says, this is very unusual. You know, everyone else I know brings out the choice wine first, and then the ripple later, right? The cheaper wine after that. When the guests have had too much to drink, and they don't, they're not really thirsty anymore, they don't want anything else, but you've saved the best to last. And then John offers a summary of the event. He says, what Jesus did here was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So he had this miracle. And for me, the miracle isn't an issue. It shouldn't be for you if you believe God exists. Because if God is real, then uh, he must be beyond our comprehension. Because how can the finite fully comprehend the infinite? It's impossible. And so if this creator God exists, as we say, then that it's only rational that uh, he, that miracles are possible, that this God who created all things has the ability to do the extraordinary and violate, violate the, the, the laws um, that he himself, the natural laws that he himself created. So for me, the miracle is, is not an issue. But here's my, here's my issue, really my question. Why this one? Why this miracle? Why now? Why here? Why would Jesus make this his first public miracle. I mean, on the surface, it seems, it seems a bit frivolous. You know, I, you'd think he'd, if he's going to try to make a first impression, he'd make a bigger one maybe by, I don't know, healing a leper, you know, giving sight to the blind, uh, raising the dead. <laughs> those, are some serious, those are some serious miracles, but turning H2O into Merlot, you know, I, it's, just, it's just surprising. You know what I mean? It's just surprising. So Why? You know, one might, one might argue that this is another indication of the story's veracity. Dr. Reynolds Price was a very <clears throat> well-known English professor at Duke University, and in his best-selling book, Three Gospels, he makes this very point. Uh, as an author, as a literary expert, Price contends that John's biography of Jesus was written, quote, by the hand of a clear-minded, thoughtful eyewitness to the acts and the mind of Jesus. And then in terms of this specific miracle, water into wine, Price says, it seems unlikely John would describe such a feat unless he had been present and convinced of its actual and inexplicable occurrence. If not, why invent for the inaugural sign of Jesus' great career a miraculous solution to a social oversight? No one would have made something like this up. Price says, I, as a writer, know this. If I was inventing a life of Jesus, I'd want to make sure the first miracle was extremely quintessential. And he's right. Thing is, no one's making up or inventing a life of Jesus. John wasn't writing fiction. He's recording an, an event that he witnessed. And yet the question remains, why? Why this miracle? I mean, it's not like Jesus was some kind of 
aspiring circus sideshow act that was trying to entertain people. There must have been more to it. Which is why John refers to this as Jesus' first miraculous sign. But a sign of what? A sign of what? What was the meaning behind the miracle? Well, it seems to me that what Jesus does here at this wedding was meant to, at the very least, and first and foremost, reveal who he was. I mean, let's face it, no human being uh, has the ability to instantly transform 150 gallons of, of water into 150 gallons of fine wine. Only God could do that. And so the miracle affirms Jesus' divine and glorious nature. But there's more. See, once the wine was uh, offered to the master, the, the master of the banquet, uh, he would, in, in, in turn, would have distributed it to the wedding party and to all the guests at the feast so the celebration could continue. But in graciously creating and providing this, this overabundance of wine for the people, in a, way, in a way, Jesus was presenting himself as the true master of the banquet, the Lord of the feast, which was significant because uh, this was one way that the Old Testament prophets described the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. For example, the prophet Isaiah said, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And get this, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds, enfolds all peoples. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted him. He saved us. Let us rejoice in his salvation. I mean, listen, uh, Jesus never did anything without a reason, including this miracle. By turning water into wine, he was, he was offering this beautiful picture of who he was, the divine Messiah, the sovereign Lord of the feast. And it illustrated exactly what he came to do, namely to bring festival joy. Now, I'm fairly confident that most people in our culture today don't associate Christianity with outrageous party-type joy. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I know I certainly didn't. You know, I, as I mentioned last week, I was a real cynic about Christianity. I, I saw nothing more than a bunch of self-righteous people wanting to dictate my life, wanting to dump on me a bunch of rules and regulations uh, and it was all about their, their do's and their don'ts and their wills and their won'ts, and they just wanted to control my life, control my behavior. That didn't sound appealing to me at all, and it certainly didn't sound joyous. Well, a lot of people see it the same way today. That's how they view it. I've, I've heard people say it. I've heard them say things like, well, I, you know, I was brought up in the church, but, um, and you know, it's not that I have anything against Jesus, but I want to enjoy myself. I want to have fun. I, I want to be happy, as if Christianity enjoy or antithetical. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? Is there any part of you that feels that way? You know, that Christianity is just about, you know, sucking it up. <laughs> Saying no to most things. Keep your nose clean. Stay out of trouble. Follow the rules. Don't have too much fun. You know, show up on Sunday, hand out some bulletins, suffer through the boring services, do the religious rituals. I mean, it's a miserable, miserable grind but it's the price you pay for heaven. <laughs> is, that, is that what you think? Do you know anyone who thinks that way? Because they're out there. 
And it's so sad to me because it's such a, a sad and misguided view of what Christianity is and what Jesus came to do. With, this, with his, his very first miracle, he was stressing the very opposite of that. He's pressing the point that as the sovereign Lord of the feast, he came to bring festival joy, to restore it. That's the good news, see. The people of his time were beaten down by religion. They were, they were, a lot of people were giving up on God. They were beaten down by the rules and the regulations. Remember, Jesus said, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He came to extend grace and provide festival joy. Think of the symbolism. At the wedding here, the wine ran out. The joy was gone. Isn't that the way it is in life? You know, no matter how good things can be, eventually the joy runs out. Isn't that true? I mean, let's, let's be honest about this. As a society, we have elevated personal happiness to, to, to the highest possible good. I mean, it's what, we, it's what we relentlessly pursue, it's what we obsess on, it's what we live for. And yet, genuine happiness has never been scarcer or more elusive. According to the latest Harris poll, two out of three Americans admit, admit to not being happy at all despite all the things that we have. And so we fool ourselves into thinking, well, you know, the reason, I'm, the reason I'm not happy, the reason I have no joy is because I don't have enough money. I don't, I don't have enough. I need, I need more money. I need, I, need a, I need a better job if I'm going to be joyous. I need a bigger house. I need a nicer car. I need different scenery. I need a change. You know, I need more kids. I need a new relationship. I need a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a new spouse. I need a new spouse. I need improved health. Yet in the end, no matter what, none of those things ultimately deliver lasting joy. They just don't. Even, look, even if you get everything you want in life, which is rare, but let's say you get everything you could ever want in life, and it goes all your way, eventually, though, the joy still runs out because your life runs out, which is a devastating reality. So understand, Jesus finds himself at this wedding where the joy ran out, the wine was gone. And what does he do? He graciously, he graciously provides not only the best wine that people had tasted, but an overabundance of it. More joy than they could handle. And again, in, in, in so doing, he gives this, this beautiful picture of what he came to accomplish in this broken world of ours where the joy indeed runs out. The sovereign Lord of the feast came to offer graciously offer festival-type joy that lasts. But how? How, does this joy, how is this joy made possible? Well, the answer, I think, rests in Jesus' response to Mary. Because remember, she, she, she tells him that the, the, the wine was gone, right? And what, what does he say? He says, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. My hour has not arrived. And um, many scholars believe, and I would agree, that Jesus has this somewhat abrupt response because in the midst of this wedding party, his mind was on something else. It's like he sort of startles him out of, out of his thinking. And he doesn't say it's not time for a miracle, but essentially he says, it's not my time to die. Why would he say that? What was he thinking about? I'd suggest two things. First, if you're a single person like Jesus and you're at a wedding, what, do you, what, do you, what does your mind tend to drift toward? What do you tend to think about? I think the tendency is to imagine 
your own future and the potential of finding someone that you will love and, and care for and marry someday. You know, who will that be? What will they be like? What will your wedding be? Will it be a big, big wedding party, small? What, what is it all going to be like? So, in a sense, uh, I'm guessing Jesus was imagining a very similar thing. Now, why would we, why would we think that? <clears throat> Primarily because all throughout Scripture, we're told that God, as our creator, doesn't simply want a relationship to us as a king to subjects or as a shepherd to sheep, or even as a father to a child. Again and again and again, we're told in Scripture that God wants to relate to us, each of us. He wants to know us. He wants to love us as deeply and intensely as a groom does his bride. And therefore, all throughout, all throughout Israel's history, God characterized himself as the divine bridegroom, the bridegroom of his people who committed themselves to him as a bride does to her husband. Or at least that's the idea. Well, Jesus applies this imagery to himself. In fact, John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the bridegroom. The bridegroom has come. And then once, when he was asked by some religious experts why his disciples didn't fast, he says, he says do, the, do the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is still with them? So you see, he publicly identifies himself as the divine bridegroom. And his people, i.e. the church, is his bride. Someday, they will be united together forever. In fact, heaven is often depicted in Scripture as what? As a great celebration, as a giant wedding feast. Now, the difference is, sometimes when we think of our future, we're daydreaming about our future, it can be troubling because, well, we don't, we don't know what the future holds, so it can generate some anxiety. But Jesus knew what was in his future, he seems troubled when Mary speaks to him because not only was he thinking about his future bride and, and the great wedding feast of heaven, but he was thinking about what it was going to take for him to provide the wine, the true lasting joy. Jesus said, it's not my time to die because that's what was on his mind. He was thinking about his death, his sacrifice, and how it would, how it would be his blood, which he later symbolized with wine at Passover, Right? It would be his blood poured out for the forgiveness of humanity's sins. And it was no accident, mind you, that he created the wine in those purification containers. They were used for religious ceremonial cleansings. And it, it, doing this, it was like he was saying, look, the only way you're going to have the great wine, the great joy, or the great feast of heaven is if, if, is if my blood is shed for the purification of all and I offer it. Don't you, don't you see what it was all pointing to? It was pointing to the fact that it would be through Jesus' sorrow that everlasting joy is made possible for us. Through his sorrow, our joy is possible. How does one receive and experience this joy? Well, by faith. You know, by faith. Think about Mary. She believed, she believed in Jesus. She knew he was special. But I'm pretty sure she had no idea what he was talking about. And I'm wondering if that happened a lot with Jesus. I'm pretty sure it did. She had no idea what he was talking about. So she doesn't really respond. It's not like she's thinking, man, he's confused. No, no, he's never confused. We're confused. Sometimes we don't understand what Jesus is saying or why he's saying it. But he's never confused. And so she doesn't respond. 
Instead, she just trusted that he knew exactly what he was talking about and that he could turn a sad, disastrous situation around and somehow solve the joy shortage, which is why she encouraged the servants to trust him as well and to do whatever he asked. And they did. They obeyed him completely. Obedience always follows trust. As a result, festival joy was restored. Because of what happened, John says that he, along with Andrew and Philip and Peter and Nathaniel, they had their faith in Jesus strengthened. Their belief in him was, was bolstered. And although we don't know the names of the servants who obeyed Jesus, I'm guessing their lives were seriously impacted as well. Can you imagine them going home that night? So what happened at work today, honey? Uh, the wine, water went to wine, you know? How could you not be impacted by that? And then John assures us that this, was, this turning water into wine was just the first of Jesus' many miraculous signs through which he would reveal the beauty of his goodness, the beauty of his grace, the beauty of his glory. So, I gotta tell you, uh, this is a very challenging text to teach on. I really struggled with it, primarily because there's just, there's so much here, there's so much rich symbolism associated with this wedding and all the events surrounding it culturally, biblically, socially. I mean, no joke, I could go on for another 45 minutes, which I know you don't want me to do, so I'm prepared for that. Um, so let's end with one final question. So what? What does this have to do with me? What does all this have to do with us? I think it comes down to this, as I already alluded to, in this tragically broken and sinful world of, of, of ours, there is a serious joy shortage. And as hard as, we, as we, we try and try and try to find lasting pleasure and lasting contentment, lasting happiness, and we, we look in all kinds of places, we look for it in money and careers and possessions and power and vacations and even relationships, make no mistake, the things of this world, even the best things, overpromise but always underdeliver. For the temporary joy they offer it eventually runs out. And the only way to solve that problem is to invite Jesus into your life. And understand, he's, he's no wedding crasher, but if you invite him, he'll come and be the life of your party. For the sovereign Lord of the feast brings a festival-type joy that never runs out, no matter what. Through his sorrow, death is swallowed up forever. And if we, we trust him, he'll rescue us, he'll save us from certain disaster. He'll wipe the tears from our, our faces and someday, someday welcome us into the great feast of heaven. For surely he is our God. Let us rejoice in the beauty of his glory and the wonder of our salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, it is our tendency as human beings in our rebelliousness, um, in our arrogance, um, to tr try to find happiness in so many places. We pursue it, we obsess on it, especially in our culture. We, 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 we live to find it. It's a constant and relentless um, search 
And it always ends up disappointing because the things of this world will never fully satisfy. The joy always runs out. The joy always runs out. I pray this morning that we would have a much deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. To graciously bring festival joy. It's not forced on us. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to beg for it. We don't have to pay for it. It's offered freely. It's the good news of grace and the joy that it brings in knowing that it's not based on what we do but what Jesus has done for us. That is the good news. That's, that's the joy. That in, that in that is the celebration. I pray that you would help us grasp that more fully this morning. And as we do, may our hearts just well up with an indescribable sense of joy, contentment, hope, and security. And if there's any, anyone in the room this morning who's never made that commitment to you as Savior, never said, I believe, Jesus, I believe in you, what you've done for me, I pray as we sing these two songs that they would allow those words to reflect the prayer of their heart for the, perhaps the first time as a statement of belief, as a statement of joy for what you have done for us. We revel in your glory and the beauty of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we? You know, I don't know about you, it's kind of it's hard to sing that song without this deep sense of joy and, and, and hope and, and love and gratitude. I mean, it's almost overwhelming to me, you know. It's a reminder that Christianity is not just a rational thing. It's not just a head thing. It's a heart thing. It's, it's rational. It's experiential. It's, it's uh, intellectual. It's emotional. It's both and. And um, I, ho- I hope you understand that. And I, I really hope you get the fact that Jesus came to graciously offer us joy forever. That doesn't run out. Religion will wear you down. It will break you down. will leave you miserable. Jesus came to lighten the burden to do for us what we could never do ourselves. And that's where the joy is, where grace is found. And believing in him, embracing him as the sovereign Lord of the feast, that joy is yours. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And I, I, hope, I hope you understand that. If you have questions about it, talk to someone you know from Parthia or come down following the service. Some of our prayer team folks will be down here. They'll be happy to talk with you about it or pray with you. Um, but make that commitment to Jesus um, and the joy will never run out. I want to thank you guys for being here. I mentioned last week, uh, if you would like to supplement our study by just doing some study on your own outside of Sunday morning, which I'd encourage you to do, this is a very good tool. It's by uh, N.T. Wright. It's John 26 Studies, and you can do this on your own. It takes just a few minutes each day to go through a study, ask good questions, and you can work through it. Uh, We ran out last week. People were buying them, so uh, we got some more. So there's some out in the lobby at the resource desk. Uh, you can make, make, make sure you pick one of the, those up if you'd like to. Also want to remind you that groups are getting started. Sign-ups are today, uh, uh, Recovery and Support Monday, as well as all of our life groups and Wednesday morning Bible study, all those things. You can stop by the table uh, and sign up, or you can go online and do it as well. Okay? Great. Thanks for, com- for coming this morning. Come back next week. We're going to take a look at, at a religious insider who uh, I think there's some things about this guy we're going to learn that maybe we never knew before. So you come back. I'll tell you who it is next week. All right? In the meantime, have a good week. Let me pray for us. 
Our Father, this morning may we go from this place with, with a great sense of joy, not just an emotional happiness, but a deep, deep sense of true joy, knowing it'll never run out. There's nothing in this world that we can lose if we have heaven to look forward to. A great feast that will last forever in which we will praise you, our God, all because of Jesus and what he's done for us. May we live our lives this week in the context of our culture with such joy and grace that we represent you well to the people who yet have yet to know you. May your hand of grace and peace now and strength rest on your church. And with great joy, we leave this place in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here, folks. We'll see you next Sunday.